As you're seated, the preaching of God's Word is in Luke chapter 22, and there verses 21 through 23. So to read those three verses once more for our focus, Luke 22 from verse 21 to 23. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. These three verses, of course, come in the moment of great intimacy of the Lord with his people. And so you'll notice it's in the context of both the Passover and Lord's Supper. But even more clearly is Christ is quite conscious of his pursuing of death. And so he was aware that this day was coming. He even says in this moment that it goeth as it was determined for the Son of Man. He's under no misunderstanding. He's quite and fully aware and committed to fulfilling the purpose for which he came, which in many ways can be summarized as saying to lay down his life for the sheep. And yet what's striking is as he nears that moment, Instead of, as would typically be expected and common to us, blinding himself from all other concerns of others and consuming himself with his own focused and enduring of what was coming, his eyes are open and it seems almost that he's consumed with his concern for others around him. And so it's, of course, evident, as he said at the beginning of the Passover meal, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And so he's earnestly doing so, and he says, before I suffer. He institutes the Lord's Supper, which of course is not only for them then present, but for the church throughout all ages to show the Lord's death till he come. And so the Lord has this unmatched focus upon his people. And indeed, his very suffering was an aspect of that. For why was he to suffer? but for the sins of his people. The whole of Christ's ministry was a focus upon the Father's will to save this beloved and chosen people. And never once does he flinch from it or take his eye off of it, but is ever with a single eye focused. And yet it's not only that he's focused, but he's committed to it. He with earnestness is pursuing these things. There's a great contrast, of course, present. Not only is there the perfect love of Christ and the imperfect love of his believing people present, as will be displayed, notice in the subsequent passage, when there was strife among them. So this is inclusive of all the disciples who should be greatest. And then later after that, Simon himself will, of course, flee and deny Christ, knowing him. But there's also the contrast of the perfect love of Christ and the perfectly veiled hatred of his traitor. This is the focus of the passage. Behold, look, consider this. The hand of him that betrayeth me is with him on the table. What a very tangible expression. The hand that should hand me over is right now present here. And you think for a moment, there are these seasons in our lives where it's as if everything goes out of focus except a primary concern of our soul. And right now, that's what happens to the disciples. And Christ goes further and he says, truly, the Son of Man, a messianic title that he takes to himself, goes as it was determined. That is, I know I'll be betrayed. I know I'll suffer. I know I'll die on the cross. I know all these things will happen because it was by the determinate counsel of God before the foundation of the earth. But none of that in any way lessens the enormity of sin that is to be shown by the hand of the betrayer. Woe unto him that, unto that man by whom he is betrayed. This word woe is an expression that is in many ways not so much a word 
as this guttural expression. So we see it sometimes in Old English like, alas, or we might say, oh, but it is, of course, expressive of one who has come under heavy burdens. And it is used for those who are brought under a curse. Do you remember Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he, though it's a Hebrew word there, uses this word, woe is me, I am undone. This word undone means I'm unraveled. The garment that was nicely and neatly put together has now been shred apart and there's nothing together anymore. I am finished. And Christ, of course, would use this word pronouncing woes against Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum. For if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the works that were done in you, they would have repented long ago. So he's pronouncing curses upon those cities. And this is what he's doing here. The one who is to betray me is under a curse. And the disciples get this because then they realize this is significant. And notice it says that they began to question, to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Now we need to note as you study the gospel accounts that by no means is there disagreement as to the legitimate sequence, but the gospel writers at times exercise a prudent crafting of the narrative in order to emphasize different things. And so not always is there the exact sequence followed. So for instance, if you read Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, you'll find this admonition actually precedes the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so the point here is not to determine was Judas at the Lord's Supper, if he were so present. It does nothing to our understanding of the scriptures because unregenerate men may come and they eat and drink judgment to themselves. If he weren't present, it's no matter because nowhere does it say that he was literally uh, among the 12 there. What is clear in the scriptures is he is most certainly present at the Passover and he is most certainly present when this admonition is given. The question that is before us is was he, when was this in sequence issued? But that's not a question that Luke or Matthew and Mark answer. Because Luke's purpose in this section of his gospel is to show the wondrous concern of Christ for souls and in many ways to disclose the many faults of his disciples. So notice what happens in this narrative. Not only is there this about Judas, but then there's strife among them who would be the greatest. And then it is that there's this launching into Simon. And as you read it, you get the sense this isn't happening one after the other. It happened in general at that time. But what Luke is doing is he's highlighting something by contrast. Look how unmoving Christ is committed to the good of his people in spite of all of the failures of an unregenerate reprobate and of regenerate believers who are yet imperfect in their sin. So the whole purpose of this chapter is to show there is one and one only who stands perfect, and it's Jesus Christ. And it's also showing us why it was needed that Christ should suffer. Whatever the case of Judas's presence at the Lord's Supper or not, notice the words of the text itself. That it is, this one who will betray me is with me. The hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And woe unto that man, which then causes this great concern to the others. Well, we wish to look at this and consider well this message, not only regarding Judas, but as it is to warn us and admonish us against the same kind of sin of which Judas himself was guilty. So consider then three things regarding this betrayer. Firstly, the privileges that a betrayer may have. Secondly, the problem that a betrayer has. And thirdly, the punishment that the betrayer will have. These three things 
to warn us, but also by God's grace to confirm unto the believer encouragement as we look alone to Christ. So then what are the privileges a betrayer may have? Well, we can look at Judas and we can see a number of them quite easily. So notice, of course, and remember with great clarity that a betrayer necessarily demands some interest in the one to be betrayed. And so one thing that we see among the privileges is that a betrayer has a degree of familiarity with the one who is to be betrayed. In fact, you can't betray someone unless in some manner you have a relationship with them. A betrayer is often a secret at first until the moment is disclosed. And so you'll notice that Judas has great familiarity with Christ. And it is throughout the section of this part of the history of Christ's earthly ministry. And of course, Judas will know where Jesus often spent his seasons of prayer. That's something that is only known to a few. You would have to be with him many times that he off uh, um, left and went to this uh, garden where he would pray. Judas knew that. Why was that? Because Judas was with him. Judas spent time with him. Judas was among the 12 apostles. He was commissioned by Christ with extraordinary gifts for an extraordinary office to be one. And yet here, as is noted, notice the language. It is with me on the table. Now, of course, there are occasions where outright and open enemies come to a table, but that's often either the bar of justice or it is the bar of negotiation. But here is a table for feasting and feasting in spiritual things. If only of the Passover, nonetheless, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. If including the New Testament Lord's Supper, that as well. But whatever the case, the table that is before them is not a table of, uh, of justice. It's not a table of uh, negotiation. It's a table of fellowship. This will be significant later on when Judas comes, and it should strike us this statement, when he kisses Christ and Christ says, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The kiss, which is to be a sign of great intimacy, becomes a sign of treachery when Judas turns from him. The point is, a privilege that a betrayer may have is great familiarity with Christ. And so it's not just that he darkens the shadows of a church building. It's not just that his lame is sometimes included on the role of those present. It's not just that they are identified as an outward Christian and so on. It's that they have much intercourse with Christ. They have his word before them. They attend the services and they even may partake of the sacraments, which are signs and seals of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great privilege, which makes the betrayal all the more wicked. Another aspect of the privilege is not to be overlooked. Judas is not only familiar with Christ, but he's in covenant with Christ. So Judas, of course, as a Jew, would have been circumcised, and he himself was of those who attended synagogue, and from his boyhood upward had been attendant upon the various ordinances of the Old Testament. So the equivalent, of course, is exactly your experience right now. Catch this for a moment. Not talking about your spiritual relationship, but in your activity outwardly, what you're doing is what Judas did. He sat to hear God's word. He sat with some degree of being marked out of the world as one who was in league with Christ. He was one whom others would have looked at and said, you are of Jesus' disciples. Remember later on, Peter will be identified as those who were of Jesus' disciples. And easily it would have been said the same of Judas. Judas, you're one of his disciples. I've seen you with him. When he was walking through, you were walking through. When he was teaching, you were there. When the fish were uh, passed out and the loaves were broken, you were among them passing out. I've seen you with Christ. I've heard you 
preach of Christ, from your lips went forth the message, repent and believe the gospel. With your ministry, sick were healed. Remember when the 12 go out and later the 70 as well. Miraculous signs attended them. And there's never a footnote, never a whisper, never a note except for Judas. You remember on the last day that it will be said to the Lord, 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 did we not cast out demons and raise the dead and feed the sick and do all of these things? You see, he's a covenant member, and yet within the covenant, he's also given the privilege of serving as a minister of the gospel. Now, in our day of egalitarianism, there is, of course, not much concern by the world about the formal and public ministry of the gospel. That only discloses and shows forth the ignorance of our current day. And it's not only in the world, the church has leveled this. And so there's no significance about being a pastor or there's no significance about being an elder or a deacon. These are, after all, Christians. And so all Christians are Christians. Don't worry about these things. And of course, there can be a very wrong exercise or acknowledgement of authority. But the error of that should not cause the church to do away with the distinction the Bible gives. There is a great privilege in being set apart by Christ to be a minister of the gospel. Judas, get this in our heads well, was no common minister. He was no ordinary minister. He was of the first rank of ministers as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Were it not so blasphemous... We would laugh at billboards when it advertises apostles preaching the word at some local church. It is inexcusable that people in today's world should think that apostles and prophets and evangelists, which were extraordinary officers, continue today. And the simple evidence we have for that is, where are the signs of the apostles performed by you? You say you're an apostle, but prove it. Paul said, the signs of an apostle were done by me in the sight of many. There's evidence of it. All you have are masses following you and a billboard and a tab on your neck that says you're an apostle. We set aside all the superfluous and blasphemous ignorance of our day to look for a moment and see the significant privilege afforded to Judas not only a covenant member in which the means of grace were administered, but an apostle, a minister in that covenant, who was telling others of the grace that was being held forth. When we start to see this for a moment, we start to realize the weight of sobriety that should fall upon us. With this simple question, who here has the privilege of being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone would have to be silent, apart from the words, I'm not. Now we can say, who here is a covenant member? And everyone would be able to say, I am. Who here has some degree of familiarity with Christ? I do. But who here is an apostle? We say, no, that was reserved for eyewitnesses, hand-chosen and ordained by Christ alone, attended with miraculous signs and wonders that outwardly displayed their apostolic office. No one here has that privilege. And so Judas had greater privileges in some ways than you and I have in outward things. Why do we emphasize this? Because if all you're resting on are the same privileges of Judas, he had more than you and yet was the betrayer of the Lord. So think for a moment. If you're content with going to church, if you're content that you're a baptized member or a communicant member, 
If you're content that you've been used somehow in some instrumental way for the good of others, if you're content with being aware of Christ and being able to recite the Bible, perhaps you've memorized large portions of the Bible, perhaps you've never missed a Sabbath day attendance upon public worship, perhaps you have family worship day in, day out, and so on, but if you're content in resting in the outward things, if you look well in the mirror, you'll see Judas. Because Judas had all those things and more. The privileges a betrayer may have are no little privileges. They are of the greatest order under only the saving privileges of God's elect. This is one point the scriptures are clear in making to us that these are real privileges but the privileges unresponded to by faith embracing Christ do nothing for the life to come apart from make weightier the experience of torment and anguish. This is a solemn thought that needs to be understood as we go on. If you fail to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace, your agony will be incomparably worse than the Muslim who never heard of Christ, who's murdered others in the name of Allah. Your agony will be all the worse than those who have done unspeakable things in the name of false religion, because unto you have these privileges been afforded. You need to realize that. This is not a game. This is not something of the second order importance. This is of the greatest order that there is. Some of you as fathers or mothers, some of you as children say, you know what, the world has thrown away family. Whatever else happens on my watch, I'm going to be faithful to my family. And we thank God for that. But you also need to be faithful to your God. And if you fail in that, Though your family be well provided for, though your marriage is exemplary, though your children are raised up well and know that mom or dad love them, you in the end will regret that you prioritize something of importance that was secondary to the one thing that is of the greatest importance. Perhaps Judas took great pride in being noted as, think of this, one of twelve hand-chosen apostles by the Messiah. Perhaps he took great pride in thinking, look what the demons do. I speak in Christ's name and they're cast out. We don't know. There's not much said of it. But we do know this. All of those privileges which would puff up men, in the end, only weigh him down for all eternity. And the same is true for everyone who receives privileges and yet refuses the embrace of Jesus Christ. Take note, your outward privileges will be your undoing if they do not, by God's grace, lead you to forsake all and embrace Christ. What is then, secondly, the problem a betrayer has? Well, the problem is not that he doesn't have privileges, he has plenty of them. His fundamental problem is that his allegiance is not actually to Christ. His fundamental problem is that his love is ultimately not for Christ. He may be very respectful for a season. It seems that for three years, outwardly considered by the esteem of all men, he was an, an honorable servant of Christ. Now, we saw earlier, and we don't need to unpack all of it as well, that he was one who lusted for the things of the world. He was secretly stealing from the money bag, but none of that was public. That was only in hindsight realized after all these things. So far as anyone would have known, if you were with Peter, or you were with John, or you were with Judas, you were in the presence of one who was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the world think of you? You're a churchgoer, you're a Christian, you profess this, you say, no, that's wrong, this is right, that's all fine. But notice in the betrayer, the problem is not his outward expression for a time, however long that is, for three years, for Judas, for instance, or if you include the time before being a, an apostle of Jesus, his youth upward as he was a covenant member. But the problem was one that would not be seen until it was too late. 
that his fundamental allegiance was not to his Lord. His fundamental allegiance was not to God. His fundamental allegiance was a commitment to himself. He loved himself. And so when things aren't going the way he does, he finally comes to a point and he says, listen, I'm going to get good by me. He goes to the chief priests and to those who are uh, leaders and he says, what will it take? What will I gain if I betray him unto you? If I take him and I hand him to you, what do I get? Isn't that astounding? What do I get if I hand over the Lord of life? What do I get if I give to you the one you hate? What's it showing about Judas? It's showing that whatever his profession has been, whatever his service has been, it's all been a facade that has been hiding the real thing. He is not one who trusts, nor one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a sobering thought to think of the possibility that in this very room, those who are unconverted, given the right circumstances, would trade Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Why would someone do that? You know, we look at the atrocities that have been recorded for us and we have to stop looking at them because they are overwhelming. We say, what in the world would lead anyone to do that to children or to women or to civilians? And our souls shudder within. And there are times where we feel almost that we're not able to contain our very stomachs at those things which are reported. But you realize, Christian, you have an answer. Here's why people do that. Because they are enemies of God. Because they don't love God. They don't trust God. And here's the sobering truth. Anyone here who is not trusting in God is capable of the same atrocities. Would God remove his hindrances and give us over to sin? Judas is going the way of self-reliance of self-promotion, of self-care, of self-love, by the way, which are the constant refrain of our day. Everything is focused upon what you can have, what you get. All of these things are there. A handful of years ago, Time Magazine published the person of the year, and on the cover was a mirror, a reflective thing that someone could pick up the magazine and they would see themselves. There's nothing really new or novel about that. That's been the consuming focus of unbelieving people since the fall. The overwhelming concern of us is ourselves. And whether that shows itself with religious diligence, saying whatever else I'm thought about by my parents or friends or others, I'm going to be thought about as a religious person. Whatever else others think of me, I'm going to be a good father. I'm going to be a good mother. I'm going to be a good child. I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to be a good this and that and the other thing. But in the end, what will be shown is the real motive for your life is yourself. This is what comes crushingly down when the sinner is converted. What is happening when one is converted by God's grace is arrow and sword come upon the sinner to make them see they are reprehensible in the sight of a holy God. And until they come to terms with that and flee from themselves into Christ, they stand, whatever else men see, rightly see, rightly honor, rightly award, in the sight of God, they are despised. Here is a great judgment that we need to realize. When God allows someone to continue in their self-interest, that is God handing one over to certain destruction. If you stand unconvinced and unconvicted, you need to sober for a moment and say, God is leaving me to myself. God is letting me be at peace with the idol that I am to myself. If I am not concerned about my sins, whether I'm a young girl or an old man or an old woman or a young boy, 
if I don't have that conviction that I stand in my sins vile to God in utter and complete need for His grace, God is for at least the season passing me by. And what would happen if He continues that? But that one day soon enough, your true allegiance will show itself. And some get shaken by this and they say, no, no, I'm going to double up my reading. I'm going to start coming to church. I'm going to get a little bit more sleep so I never fall asleep in the services. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to start listening to sermons. I'm going to talk with people. I'm going to read the best books. All of these things start to happen. And yet really what's that disclosing? Allegiance to self still. I want myself to be thought of as right. I want myself to be thought of as right in the sight of my parents, in the sight of the church, in sight of the world, in the sight of God. I want God to know that I'm right. I've got it. I've taken care of what needs to be taken care of. And yet all of that is so clearly seen by God and by spiritual men and women as a fundamental allegiance to yourself that will fool no one in the end. The problem that a betrayer has is not that he lacks privileges. It's not that he lacks covenant promises. It's not that he lacks the knowledge of the way, the truth, and the life. It's that he's so consumed with self that he will refuse all of those things to in the end say, I've got it. I can handle it. I'll take care of it. The great difficulty that comes in the way is when Christ then doesn't line up with your preferences. Because when that happens, the commitment to self will show itself. And you'll pass Christ by and say, I'll have it this way. That's what a betrayer does. A betrayer is one who aligns with outwardly with someone, gives some evidence of saying, I'm in line with this person. But finally, when push comes to shove, as we say, the moment of crisis comes, the person says, that's too much for me to follow him. I'll have it. My way. That's what a betrayer does. Why does he do it? Why does she do it? Because the allegiance is to self, not to Christ. And then all of a sudden it makes sense, right? When Christ says, if you're going to be my disciple, here's the first and fundamental way of understanding it. You must. It's not an option. It's not 201 level, 301 level, or any other level. It is fundamental to be my disciple. Your fundamental step must be to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There's no real discipleship without that. There's no actual, in the sight of God, one being a follower of Christ, unless the one is saying, I am dying to myself. I am fleeing from myself. I am casting myself upon Christ and I'm saying no longer my understanding, no longer my preferences, no longer my schedule, no longer my desires, no longer my plans, my purposes, my pursuits. It's all dead because I die to myself here to take hold of you and to follow you. Think of how beautifully marriage illustrates this point, or at least should illustrate this point. When, of course, there's mutual exchange of vows. But you think of the bride as she says, I take you to be my husband. Now, the world has cast off long ago what that means, the significance of it. But think biblically of what she's saying. Sarah called Abraham Lord. And all Christian women are to do the same to their own husbands. The bride is saying, there's no other man, this might startle you, who has the right to command me than you. What you say is how I will go. You're my husband. And so as you lead me, I'll follow. What you say is going to govern me. Now, this doesn't make her into some slave and so on in the ways that the world would ridicule, but it gives us the biblical picture that the woman is submitting herself to her husband and saying, I now die to myself. My career thrown out the window. My desires, they're done because you're my husband. Now, of course, this should be with the husband likewise standing and saying, I love you. 
as Christ loved the church. And I will serve and give myself unreservedly for your temporal and spiritual good with my body, with my soul, with all that I am, I now live for you. But notice one thing that's being said in both ways. Both the husband and the wife are saying, so far as this relationship is concerned, there is no other man and there is no other woman. You and you alone. And yet you and I know plenty of broken marriages where a man cheats on his wife, a woman cheats on her husband. And the vow that was taken is cast aside. What's going on is their vow doesn't match their heart. And scripturally, when one professes faith, they are saying in so many ways to Christ, there is no one else, not even me myself, who has right over me anymore. I am solitarily, singularly yours, no one else. The betrayer can say the words. The betrayer can walk it for a season in outward things. But when it comes down to self-interest and Christ following, we know how it will fall out. And that's what happens to Judas. The moment comes, doubtlessly insignificant in many ways, 30 pieces of silver. And what happens? He hands over the Lord of life for selfish temporal gain by the way which never satisfies. So soon as it's done and Christ is there suffering, Judas takes this 30 pieces and throws them back. Be sure your allegiance to yourself will not satisfy you in this life and it will most certainly not satisfy you in the life to come. The exchange of self for Christ will be seen to be the absolutely most foolish and vile and reprehensible choice ever made. Christ comes saying, I'm the Savior. I will give you eternal life. Stay with me. Trust in me. And there is a world of glory that will be yours unendingly. And the unbeliever says, I'd rather have my friends I'd rather have my work. I'd rather have my sports. I'd rather have my music. I'd rather have my speech. I'd rather have my time. I'd rather have all of these things, which in the end will all perish, than have you. The betrayer is blind spiritually and yet willfully blind. He takes, as it were, those instruments and gouges out his own eyes so that he will not see and take hold of Christ who is held forth to him. What is the punishment of such a thing, brethren? Woe unto that man. It is impossible for us to hear the groanings of the damned. But be sure of it. There are groanings of the damned. And they aren't rational and reasonable. They aren't raising up good excuses and you know, arguments with God. They are crying out in the opposite, as it were, of the angels in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth shall be filled with His glory. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord and I am consumed. Woe is me with no relief ever to be found, ever to be in sight. My eternal and everlasting existence is this unending agony that to me was preached the gospel, that to me was held forth the covenant mercies, that to me was held forth everlasting life, and I chose temporal vanity instead of the life to come. How can I count for you guys the consideration that some of you sleep through this sermon and you pass by eternal life Christ pursues you. 
Christ calls out to you. And you hope that in a passage of 30 minutes, an hour, four or five days, that your soul will get back to ease, you'll have your friends, and everything will be okay. Brethren, there are sinners in hell who have been in church more than you have been in church, who have heard Christ more than you have heard Christ, and who have forsaken Christ for greater things than you forsake Him. And yet in the agony of hell, there is but one resounding refrain, Woe is me! I am undone. Some of you parents need to pull your children aside and say, how is it with your soul? I know you're memorizing the Bible, but I need to know, how is your soul? Some of you spouses need to go to your husband or wife and say, I need to talk to you. Is your soul okay? Some of you need to call up a parent. Some of you need to go to a neighbor and say these things. You need to realize that your soul is on the precipice of entering into the world of damnation. And you're more concerned about your investments, about your sports, about your friends, and about your food than you are the fact that your soul will perish and will have no hope ever. I expect that if any of us on our way home saw a fire erupt in a garage, we would slam on the brakes and we would call 911 and we would rush the house, banging on the door, opening the door, saying, is there anyone in here? You need to come out. We would search to the best of our abilities to find out if anyone was there. And yet we are content Capture this as Christians who know the hope of heaven. We are content to sit quietly, respectably, civilly, while untold thousands are on their way to damnation. That's not what Christ did. Christ calls it out at this table. There is a hand with me on the table that will betray me. Christ comes with a searching probe. And though Judas refuses, resists, and continues headstrong, one thing that Christ will be able to say on the last day is this. As a watchman, I told people, as a watchman, I said, blood is coming. As a watchman, I stood at the gates. I stood on the top of the wall. And I cried out to people and said, damnation comes to those who perish in their sins. May I ask you for a moment, though not a minister, are you able to make the same claim? Are you able to say that those I have watched over, I have said to them, except you repent and believe on the gospel, you will perish and I will give glory to my God. Have you called people in your influence to turn from the Lord Jesus Christ or turn to Him? What is their punishment? Unending shame, unending regret, unending torment, shame. What an embarrassment it will be for those. What utter consuming shame will grip them that I was so foolish to love dirt, earth, more than the Lord of glory, that I love time more than eternity. What utter regret that the Savior was near to me, and instead of fleeing to Him and casting myself on Him, I girded up my loins and I endured difficult sermons and I went back to work, I went back to school, I went about my ways, and I carried on unchanged. That will be unending regret and unending torment. What do you think will come to those who oppose the Son of God? But the just and unending wrath of the Lord of hosts. Here is the most searching fact of this passage. You and I, more or less, 
stand in the same outward predicament as Judas. Judas is not outside of these walls, you understand. Judas is inside the walls. Judas is not on the front line of the enemies with the banners raging over them. He's on the side of Christ with the banner over him saying, I am the Lord's. Judas is not out there profligate and adulterous and drunken and so on. Now his sins are there in secret, but they're not public. He's among the people of God. And the punishment that will come upon such a one will consume him throughout eternity. Brethren, why so solemn a thing? And why would it be that Christ would not just say, Judas, you're the one? Well, he does say, as recorded elsewhere, what you do, do quickly. He knows, Judas knows, they're on the same page. They know what's taking place. But it's because Christ would have his disciples, every one of them, be awakened to the need they have. Not to rest in secret revelations, but rather to rest in the revealed truth of the soul that believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ is saved. Christ doesn't come to Peter and James and John and the other 11 and say, you're okay and you're okay and you're... But we all got to look at Judas now. Judas is the problem. He gives this broad brushstroke because the way of peace is not by finding our name in the clouds. It's not by finding our name outwardly communicated. It's by finding our hope resting upon Christ. It's by our fleeing to Him. And so this is the appeal that the Lord will give to each of you. There is no peace. There is no safety. There is no hope except you, you, except you are trusting in Jesus Christ. There's no hope apart from that. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And it's as if Christ says, you'll only know that. And the answer to it, in one of two ways, if you're trusting in me, or if you're not. You see, what Christ is doing is pastorally skillful. He doesn't come like so many today would say and say, oh, you're okay, you know, you're doing this and that, and you're a church member and all that. He's saying, you need to realize this, visible saints may be the very betrayer. But the rest of his ministry was so clear. He says, if you're thirsty, I'm the water of life. I'll give you drink. What's he saying? Trust in me. If you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. I'll feed your soul. Trust in me. If you're laboring and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. What's he getting at? He's getting at this. The comfort of our souls is not in the decree of God made known to us. It is in the promise of Christ embraced by us. It is in our fleeing to his promises and saying, I take you and my whole hope is upon you. My only hope is that you are faithful and true and I put the whole of my hope upon Jesus Christ. The secret things belong to God. We'll never be able to peer at this time into the decree of God and say, am I among the elect or am I among the reprobate? But the revealed things belong unto us and to our children. And among the revealed things are the promises of God, the way of forgiveness of sins. And what's revealed? Those who trust in Christ, not just with their lips, but those who truly place their hope upon him. And what marks evidence the same, they actually deny themselves. They take up their cross. They follow him. You tune in this evening and you'll hear this. The converted have a new life. They live now by Christ. They deny everything because they want Christ. Brethren, if you hope to have peace to your conscience by fleeing to some secret revelation and saying, show me, am I elect? Am I reprobate? The heavens will remain as brass. But if you want to know peace, you need merely look to Christ's promise who says, the one who trusts in me is forgiven. The one who flees to me is saved. The one who calls upon me shall indeed know salvation. 
Because do you know what the asking to God, this question, show me am I elect or reprobate is? It's a saying, you come to my terms and I'll take it from here. God doesn't do that for any of us. God says, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. You come to my terms. I've said the soul that believes. I've said, here's the promise. I've said, here's Jesus Christ. Your one and sole focus must be, have I embraced Christ? Is there evidence of walking with Christ? That Judas had not. Brethren, that's a heavy and difficult thing. But consider well what Christ holds forth to you. And do not cast away so noble a gift that the angels with the saints in heaven will rejoice in your demise over. But rather, consider so noble a gift and reckon unto yourself the great privilege of embracing that that the angels in heaven would erupt in praise and the saints in heaven with you would fill the glory of God with the praises, worthy is the Lamb of God who has washed us from our sins with his own blood. Oh, believer, if you can, by God's grace, say, I do believe. And though imperfect by God's grace, there's the evidence of denying myself and following him. Understand this wondrous thing. That you stand by God's grace, converted, which things shall never be taken from you. What a great cause you have that he's not left you as Judas, but is taking you unto himself, which is but the foretaste of an unending paradise of the experience of God's love, not only now, but forever in glory, surely. This is worthy of your unrelenting praise and service to his name by his grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?